And welcome to another edition of Here's What We Know. I'm Gary Scott Thomas, and on today's episode, usually I kind of have a checklist of things that I'm going to go over or want to hit. Uh, not that I ever usually get to it, but today when I woke up and said, I'm going to do the, what am I, I don't need anything. We're just going to cover all the different things because my guest today is a friend of mine who literally is the smartest, tallest man I know. Maybe not the smartest man, maybe not even the tallest man, but the smartest, tallest man I know, Chuck Fannin. Chuck, how are you? Smart I am, but if you put in the height thing, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly. I I, I have a brother-in-law who I think is a touch taller than you, uh, and he only gets the nod because, well, frankly, he has a ton of hair. Yeah, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> All right, so things I wanted to one that I wanted to bounce off. We are we are recording this. If you're listening to this in the future, uh, yay, flying cars! Uh, but if you're listening to this in the future, this is being recorded in the uh, in the in the midst of the coronavirus. Right. That's that's where we are right now. That's why we're in separate studios. That's why we're we're all trying to do the social distancing and stuff like that. And uh, I, I, I Chuck and I are similar in this way. I think you both I think we both follow the numbers and not the analysis. Would you agree? I think that's. Oh, yeah. So I, I look at the numbers and I'm an engineer and I get paid to look at numbers, too. And I, I follow the numbers, and I read the different analysis because I want to see what other people make of them. But I look at the numbers and try to evaluate them for myself as well. So I find it interesting. I think I think we're closer at this point, and this is uh, this is in uh, early May. I think we're closer to the end as far as this being over over uh, than I think we are at, 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 like in the middle. In my opinion, what do you think? I, I think we're I think we're closer to being out of this first phase where everything's really extremely locked down and all that. I, I think there's I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think after that, we're in for a long period where there's some stuff that doesn't go back to normal for a long time. But I yes, we're coming close to where we're not locked down as severely. I think I think we get back to normal quicker than people think, uh, simply because we're humans. Uh, once once we all are aware, once you know the tiger's not out there to eat you, then you go back. You back go back to walking with your back towards the tiger. You do. I mean, they, they, that's the problem they have in India, where literally tigers eat you. And as you can see a tiger, they won't eat you. And everybody goes, oh, we'll put the mask on our head and we'll turn around and we'll always, we'll always walk around. And then we go a couple of months or years without a tiger attack and people start walking forward again without looking back. So I think we'll adapt quicker than we all think, because right now we're in the midst of, of being afraid. I, I would agree with that. And on your uh, comment that we're going to come back faster than people say, when I've observed current events over the last 30 years or so, it seems like every time we have a down period, whether it's a recession or after the 911 attacks, the, the experts who are close to the mess will give us predictions about how long this is all going to last, and it never lasts nearly that long. Well, you know, I mean, I'm mean, hearing somebody saying, oh, we're going to be in an economic downturn for the next 10 years. I've heard stuff like that before. Didn't we hear stuff like that after 2008? Mm-hmm. It did not take 10 years to come back. Well, and that's my thing. What we know about predictions, especially the predictions that they gave us going into this, that they're wrong. And not only are they wrong, they're really wrong. I mean, I would hate to have to get my money based on the predictions. If the predictions were accountants, we'd fire them. Yeah. 
So it's it's fascinating to me on that. So that's that's where we uh, we're at, and we don't have to go down to the minutia of all this other different stuff. But I was I just wanted to get your quick thumbnail take. The other thing that Chuck and I like to talk about, we've got a couple of different topics we're going to come on. One of the things is artificial intelligence. I was going to say one thing before we totally got off the coronavirus. Sure. The one thing that's made it so hard to know what's going on and probably the biggest deficiency in the early response and the thing we're trying to catch up on is, is the ability to test who's been exposed and who has it. And we didn't know so much because we couldn't measure it. And now we're getting to the point where we're not there yet, but we're getting to where we can measure better. There's more tests. They're more available. They're cheaper. We're going to get to where we can find out everybody who's had it. And once you can measure better, then you know the scope of it. And then it's not this big unknown thing out there. Then then you can see it. And oh, that's really, I think, the thing that hindered us the most. I completely agree. And to me, the number of cases, I really, not to sound callous, I don't care about the number of cases. I care about the number of deaths. That, that, yes. That's, oh, that's the absolutely. bottom line. You know, because you can have a lot of people being sick, but if a lot of people aren't dying from it, now we know where we stand. As you say, now we can measure. Now we can go, okay, you're going to get sick. I mean, just as we've talked about, there's no vaccine for the for SARS. There's no vaccine for the swine flu or bird flu, for that matter. Uh, and and it mutates. We go forward once we realized here's our acceptable list, uh, risk of death from it. And, and that's what you have to do. You have to approach each day with an acceptable risk of death. Uh, and, and and we face it every day when you get in your car, when you get out of bed, when you eat seafood, you you accept a certain risk of death. You just do. Yeah. Um, when the whole mess started, there was a woman who apparently has some sort of uh, immune compromised condition who posted on a local next door site. And she seemed to be well educated and understand this. And she said at the time. She thought the the, cur- the response was too extreme. You can argue that either way. But the point she made was we'll have to move from a strategy of trying to lock everybody down to protecting the most vulnerable. And, you know, other people go about their lives normally and you have to protect the most vulnerable. And I think that's what we'll move to. And I don't see why that's controversial. I don't. Uh, but you have you have people on both sides who are sent back going, well, you want to kill grandma and you want to decide who's going to die and you want to put our people at risk. And I'm like, no, no, I don't. But I also don't want us to devolve into uh, a failed economy where literally millions will die. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't And the other side, the people who are saying it's all a hoax and it's all a plot to force vaccines. There's crazies on both sides. Absolutely. You know, we got to. We got to get to the middle. Yeah, and that's where we're at. Is 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 it, it is with any issue? If we can get to the middle, now we have something we can work with. Uh, now we have something that we can all go. But right now, it's turned into this politicized mess, and that's where we are on that. But good point. All right, now back to artificial oh, intelligence. You, you know, because Chuck's an engineer, and Chuck and I have had many conversations on the artificial intelligence. I think I think it's already here to some extent. I mean, it, we, there's so much artificial intelligence that I don't even think we're aware of how much artificial intelligence we deal with on a daily basis, are we? That's fair. You know, so it's it's already here. I just think I think we're farther away from the next level of artificial intelligence than I think you do. Am I wrong or am I right? I think that's a, I think that's a good point, and and I, and I don't think artificial intelligence is not just one thing, but this. I think people want to, the belief is, and I guess commonly held people would say, well, artificial intelligence means a, uh, 
a computer can think like a human. And I think there's more to it than that. I mean, I think at some point that we're not close to, computers are going to be able to think more and do things different than humans. They already do. But, yeah, we're, we're a long way from any kind of holy grail, but we're doing things we never did before. What do you take of the argument of we, you know, the Skynet argument? We can't, we can't allow the computers to become too sentient because then they'll figure out they can live forever and we can't. What are we, what are we needed for? Uh, well, both of us have read science fiction. So, you know, we, we know, I mean, forget, you know, alongside Terminator movies, the guys who write science fiction have been dealing with this since the middle of the last century. Um, you can't put, I don't, I think it's one of those answers sounds pat. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You could say, Oh, we're not going to do it here. Somebody's going to do it in another country or somebody's going to do it in secret. I think we have to continue developing things and understand them and do our best to not let them get out of control. You could say that about any technology we've developed that, you know, nuclear power, which I'm in favor of civilian nuclear power. But obviously, nuclear bombs could kill a lot of people, and they've only been used twice. We can say this about any level of technology, and I, I don't think we can put it back in the bottle. I, that's a fair statement. I, I, I like that. I like the nuclear analogy. Uh, I, I do not understand. I mean, the problem with nuclear energy is what do you do with the waste? And once we figure out the waste, to me, I think it's the most pragmatic solution to our energy needs i mean that's that's just me on that but the artificial intelligence here's here's where where i have the problem my problem is human use of artificial intelligence uh it it put it this driverless cars it's a big catchphrase amongst me and people who know me is that you know is driverless cars what will happen is we know i know that there will be Parents who will throw kids, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-olds in a car and tell the car to take them to school and back because because they want to be horrible parents or, you know, because things, I, I'm too busy. You know, you can always use that excuse, but let's be clear. Let's go down to the worst common denominator because they're home drunk. You know? Yeah, and, well, that's a level, that, and that's a different level. That's how much are we going to willingly turn our lives over to the artificial intelligence? And that's a human question, and that scares me, too. Well, and, and you know, even, even the people who give you the driverless cars, you know, when they, you see the instructions, keep your hands near the wheel and be ready to take over. Sure, sure. You're going to tell a human you should sit back and almost drive, but not drive. Don't pick up your computer. Don't read a book. Don't watch a movie. Don't surf the net. Sure. Well, and all it takes is a split second. I mean, you could be the best driver in the world, but if you're not paying attention and your car is going 60 and something else goes bad, if if you're not paying attention, you could be dead. I already see people, and we don't have all the driverless cars yet. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people riding down a road, watching their phone, watching an iPad. We were driving one time on 580, and there was a guy watching a movie on an iPad as we drove by him. That's out there today. This is where my lovely wife, Julia, wants to um, wants she wants to be in charge of the DMV and in charge of who has driver's licenses. And when she sees somebody doing that, she just wants the power to revoke their license. Yeah. But but, you know, unless we turn into the unless we turn into the nanny state where we're almost getting there. Hey, report your neighbors if they get together. (laughs) 
<laughs> then, yeah. You know, and again, that falls under the uh, falls under the headline of uh, we're doing this for public safety. Uh, I'm hoping that the Darwin effect will go into guy and the guy will run into a, cra- uh, a a light pole. That's what I'm hoping. What I'm hoping he doesn't run into is a school bus full of children. Right. So it's it's crazy on that. Now, one of the other things is science fiction and not even science fiction fix science that's almost fiction have you seen the pentagon tapes i have not you haven't seen the navy pilots and the top gun pilots chasing the balls of light i've read about that i haven't looked at it yet it is interesting to say the very least it's interesting that the pentagon would release it because i think both of us grew up in the era of no nothing's going on here nothing's going on here and now you know because we've always said if if there's aliens out there and we have all these cell phones why aren't we seeing them well when you have the government going well we don't know what this is but here's the pictures fascinating yes because what's your theory on life, on, 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 on intelligent life beyond so, Earth? Uh, I think it's possible. I, I don't know. I, you know. I don't think we're the crossroads of the universe where there's races from 100 million different uh, star systems with their flying saucers watching us. I mean, there's people who are extreme about anything. I think it's certainly possible. I read a book several years ago uh, about complex life. There, there used to be this, you know, there was a simple equation by Carl Sagan, who was a very intelligent man, but he, you know, he tried to simplify the equation just saying, well, if one in every million stars has planets and if one in every million of those has water, and I, I know I'm getting some of the details wrong, but he just kept going over the factors it would take to have life then you, it would you know, be one in however so many quadrillion or something that could have life like us. But if you look at how many stars are in the universe, it still means there's got to be millions out there with life. And that was kind of an oversimplified equation. And I, I've read some books and done some research where it talks about how unique the human race is and actually all the things that had to go right or go wrong for us to be able to live on this planet for as long as we have and hopefully as long as we continue to live on this planet. So maybe intelligent life is not so common as we think it could be, but to say it can't be at all anywhere else, I don't buy that either. Now, you look at the age of the universe, you know, you could have races that have come up and then eventually died off. So are we at the same window in time? I don't know. And there's all the problems without going into a discussion of Einstein and relativity of of trying to travel those immense distances between stars. And maybe there's a way around those, but what, you know, whether there's millions of other races and we're looking at a Star Trek universe, which would you know, be really cool as a Star Trek fan. I don't know that that's the case, but can there be life out there? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. I, I agree. I think the uh, same thing. I read something that says life, intelligent life, may as be, be as rare as one planet per galaxy. Now, you think about how many literally billions of stars are in a galaxy. And as far as we know, there are trillions of galaxies. And it may boil down to, on average, one intelligent planet. Not life. Now, life is different. Life is just functioning. An amoeba's life, I'm talking intelligent life, uh, one per galaxy. 
And then, as you say, my my thing is, is I want to believe. I want to believe that, yes, they're out there. I want to believe that that there's other people, uh, you know, that going through and pondering the same question. My problem has always been once you start looking at the hard numbers, the distances, we as humans yeah. simply cannot fathom the distances. We cannot fathom the distance of our own solar system. It's just it's beyond our scope. Uh, you know, when you say Pluto is that far away when and, you know, that, that it took how many years for the uh, for the, uh, the spacecraft to get to Pluto? Was it was it uh, 11? I, uh, the most recent one? Yes, yeah, something like that. 11 years. And it was going at 32,000 miles an hour. And for it to go past the Oort cloud, which is this big bubble that surrounds the solar system, it has to go for another almost 500 years. Yes, that's to get out of our solar system and our solar system is just a little blip in the Mil- in the milky way galaxy J- just a nondescript little blip uh and and we have a hard time and that's just to get within the galaxy what is our nearest star four years away four four point eight light years away four something um right uh four 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 light years how steady or something yeah. um and and people forget they think oh four point eight light years but they forget the equation of what a light year is. We can't travel the speed of light. We can't even really get that close to it. I mean, we, we'd have to have better technology than we have now. We'd either have to have generations of people live in the ships or put people to sleep. It would not be quick. Yeah, a light year is one hundred eighty six thousand miles a second for a year. Again. We can't, we can't, that's how long it would take you to get to the star. So it, my thing is, is I, I can't imagine these beings and I see these Pentagon tapes and I sit back and want to believe that's got to be intelligent life. Look at them moving and stuff. My, my thing is, why would you come all the way to earth and you would have to be tremendously advanced, advanced enough to understand our technology, right? So advanced enough to know that we're going to record you. And I can't believe that you would come all this way to pull a joke to go hey how you doing sorry about corona we'll catch you in a year bye i mean why wouldn't you just why why wouldn't you send a message going hey we're out there just want you guys to know you need to keep your head on straight all right what why why would you come just to poke around maybe the first thing they did when they got here is they started picking up our tv and they tuned turned in tmz or a reality show and their brains exploded <laughs> it could possibly be that case but that's that's the thing when i sit back and look at that it's like i don't know the purpose of why you would toy with a plane you'd have to be aware of that their technology you know i mean if if we go into a a lost tribe in a remote jungle uh, we're pretty much certain of the technology they will have and to me, that would be, you know, you go in there realizing you could get a spear in the head, right? But probably you're not going to hit with get hit with a laser in the eye. You understand their level right. level of technology. So why, knowing that we would have cameras, that we have airborne aircraft, uh, that we have radar, I mean, you would know that. Why would you take the time to screw around? That's a really good point. No, I, I, I would agree with that. You would... You would know our level of technology, and you would use your level of technology to do your best to remain undetected. And maybe an accident would occasionally happen, but it wouldn't be frequent. Yeah, it would. It's fascinating when you start thinking about that. As far as like getting uh, getting people excited about this about space, uh, 
and knowing that there's something out there. And plus, now we have what the event horizon is because, you know, the, the universe expands. But now we yes. found that the farther away you are, the faster it moves from us. So if you're if you're two light years away, it's moving at a speed of four light years. If you're 100 light years away, it's moving at a speed of 200 light years. So there becomes an event horizon where we simply cannot reach most of the known universe. Yep, I've actually, that, that subject you're talking about, I've actually been to a couple talks about that very subject up at Lick Observatory. I mean, it, doesn't it make you wonder the purpose of the universe? Oh, it, absolutely. It, when you really stop and think about it, it, it's very sobering to think about the whole thing. Well, I've never, I, it, in my thing in nature, and maybe you're in this, you can bring a scientific thing about it, is I've never seen nature have any wasted parts, right? There's no wasted parts. Everything becomes usable. Everything becomes necessary. Everything becomes, has a purpose. So what's the purpose of having a universe you can't reach? I don't know. Uh, and you're right. People can say, well, this looks wasted or that looks wasted. But, well, you know, people say to one time, why do we have an appendix? And now I think we understand why. But if something looks wasted, it just means we don't understand it yet. Yeah. And so when I look when I look back at to me, I, I, I see the universe as, as this tremendously large science experiment. You know, because look at all the different each planet is its own science experiment because everyone there, there's no as far as we found, there's no planets that are alike. You may have similarities, but there's none that are alike. It, 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 yes. So when you get yeah, absolutely when you get these experiments going and what's the purpose of an experiment to learn something? What's being trying? What is what is the universe trying to learn? Uh, agreed. Um, by the way, so when we were talking about the possibility of life, obviously it wouldn't, you know, we've talked for over 20 minutes now, and you can't talk to me for 20 minutes without getting at least one book recommendation. Go ahead. You know that. Uh, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe by Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee. And it's a, um, it's a book I read several years ago that's really interesting. It lays out the things we've been talking about, about how uncommon it might be to find other intelligent life. It's actually, I read it, I bought the book in 2004, so it's actually over a 20-year-old book. But it's Rare Earth by Ward and Brownlee. It's available as a Kindle book or hardcover or paperback. It's a good read if you really want to think about this kind of stuff. And I encourage you to. I encourage you to try to expand your brain. I'm not trying to convert you or do anything else. It's just fun. I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think when you start contemplating things larger than you are, I, I think there's true mental growth that happens there. I think those of us who like reading science, that's true for anybody, but those of us who've read science fiction all our lives, and I think you have too, I mean, that's there, there's this term sense of wonder, which is why a lot of people read science fiction and uh, contemplating things that are larger than you are. That's one of the things you, you, you can get from studying science and studying the world, and one of the things science fiction kind of force feeds you. See, I, 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 yeah, I, I haven't reckoned, reckoned, because I'm just constantly just reading. You're good about setting down and reading books. I'm just, I drive my wife crazy because I'm just constantly reading. When I'm on the computer, you don't have to worry about me going to, to adult sites or anything like that. She knows I'm reading some stupid, weird, obscure thing. And then it drives her crazy when I bring it up and go, listen, here's what, okay, that's why I call this podcast, so here's what we know, because I say it all the time. Here's what we know. 
right? This is what this is what we know about this. All right, this is what we know. And I drive my kids crazy. Volcanoes, Dad. What? What? Here's what we know about volcanoes. Okay, this is what we need to know. You know, uh, my sons were so scared. Uh, my oldest was scared of a volcano. He it just. It was the when he was a younger uh, child. It was it, it was his nightmare. Were volcanoes, and he was like, "Why? Why do we even have volcanoes?" And it was wonderful to sit back and go, "We need them. You don't want to be on a planet without volcanoes." Uh, if you're no. on a, you're on a planet without volcanoes, you're on a dead planet, and, and you don't you don't want to be there. You don't want to be on Mars. You you want to be on a planet where things are moving, uh, and and being able to take science and teach him and help him get over that fear of like your odds of your odds of dying in a in a volcano. You're going to have to work hard, you know. To, to die in a volcano, unless, of course, the uh, the Yellowstone volcano comes out. So, yeah, we didn't bring that up because I, I felt like he should sleep before the rest of his life goes by him. Yes, I would. I would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> and you talk about, you, you know, you, you hit your wife and family with, well, here's some obscure thing you're reading. I'm pretty sure I send you some of those things. So I'm partially guilty of encouraging you. Well, it's 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 the things that you just as you acquire more and more knowledge. To me, knowledge should lead to more questions. It doesn't lead to answers. It just leads to more and more questions where you sit back and you go, "Wow!" And that's what I, when I sit back with Chuck and talk with him, it's it's I, my any knowledge I gain just leads me usually to another question. Uh, and that's like, as we started off talking about the coronavirus, every bit, I don't think there's a solid answer, but every little piece of, of, of information should lead us to a new question. And if we can start answering the right questions and asking the right questions, I think that leads us to solid ground on no matter what, whether it's politics, you should always ask questions. There's no politician who has any answers. You should always ask the questions of the politicians and question everything that they think and, and say. Not to say there's not good people. I truly believe. I believe. Here's here's my controversial statement. I believe the majority of people who go to Congress are good people trying to do good things. I would agree with that. And, and, and certainly, there, I mean, there are some over time that get co-opted or corrupted or whatever term you want to use. But I, I think there's almost nobody who doesn't go there in the first place intending to do good things. Yeah, and and I think even those uh, a number of them, and you're right. Then you become a you become a slave to the cause, and and yes. and, and, and and insert ideology here. Doesn't matter to me what your ideology is; it doesn't. But if you become a slave to the cause, where the only thing that matters is the cause, then you no longer have any questions. You're just all about answers. Why do you right. believe this? Because this. Hmm. Really? You, you don't want to consider anybody else? No, because those people are Nazis and these are fascists and those are, you know, and phobes and ist and whatever, uh, because yes. now you don't no longer want to ask a question. Well, and the person, the person who sounds like they have all the answers, that's more attractive, too. You might more, you, a lot of people might be more likely to vote for somebody who says, I know what's wrong and I can fix this. As opposed to the person who has an inquisitive mind and sees something as a very complex problem with a lot of moving parts and says, we don't know everything here yet. You know, you look at that and that might not inspire as much confidence, even though, well, this person's taking a rational view of the world. And the person who's giving you all the answer will tell you in private, well, because I have to appeal to the lowest common denominator. I agree with that guy when he goes, we don't have all the answers. But if I I, I have to appeal to the very lowest common denominator, because once I get that going, it's like 
it's 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 like taking a, 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 a I've been doing the, the uh, exercise classes right and uh, and I, I started doing them on my own because I felt that following the class just wasn't gonna be a hard enough workout and it finally dawned on me it's like well they have to appeal to the lowest common denominator that you know they're all the all the time that during the class these pre-recorded classes telling you push yourself push yourself do what you want and I'm like you know I push myself more on my own because I'm not appealing to the lowest common denominator. And and I think politicians have to appeal to the instead of us we should all push ourselves to your own limit. Yes. Easier said than done, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, I've dominated the conversation. Is there anything you wanted to bring up before we wrap everything up? So since we were talking about artificial intelligence, there was something I, I wanted to bring up and I don't work in the field of artificial intelligence. I'm a computer programmer. I've worked in storage and networking and IT and a bunch of different things. But to understand why we're talking so much about artificial intelligence now, a good way to look at this is we're hearing all this about artificial intelligence now, not because the programmers are so much smarter, although there are very smart programmers out there. It's because we have the capability to. So when I got out of college with a degree in computer engineering back in 1983, and this is where people say they had computers in 1983. Yes, they had computers. I knew how to program. <laughs> uh, some, some people, some young kids said this to me while we we're on a trail at Yosemite once, and I'm looking over the cliff thinking if I throw them over now, no one will know. Um, but, yeah, we had computers, but the, the computers keep getting better. Any of you can look up Moore's Law on your own and the, the rate of growth of these technologies. So when I got out of college, I was working on some very state-of-the-art little microprocessors, and I was putting and I was working on this test lab. There were a dozen or a couple dozen of us, and we had little microprocessors that were running at 6 megahertz, 6 million cycles per second. And I think these computer boards had 64K of memory. And I think we, we had disk drives that used maybe a little less than a megabyte. And, and these were all very expensive things. And we were doing to the limits. And we, and we were writing in something called assembly code, which, which meant you, to do the simplest thing, because all computers do is add, subtract, and compare numbers really quick. That's all computers do. All computer programs are written on adding, subtracting, and comparing very fast. You may not think that. Well, how do I, you know? How do I watch Amazon Prime? And you know, how do, how do I Google for things? It all comes down to adding, subtracting, and comparing very quickly. So six million cycles in a second, sixty-four thousand bytes, words of memory, um, disk drives of one megabyte. So I'm I'm looking on a laptop right now. I'm I'm on a Mac MacBook Pro that I bought several years ago. It has. Uh, four 2.6 gigahertz dual core processors. So giga, giga is billions. So mm -hmm. that's you know thousands of times faster than the, 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 the than the six megahertz. And it has four of those that are soldered into the motherboard that are you know soldered into the circuit board. Well, actually, it has two of them, and each of them contains two built in. It has 16 gigabytes of memory. So again, that's billions of bytes of memory. And, and in 1983, I had 64,000 bytes of memory. It has a terabyte hard disk. So that's 1,000 megabytes, 1,000 million bytes. Um, the, so the growth has been exponential in what we have available to us. I work for a company right now, uh, Altair Engineering, that does computer, I'll give one plug, that does uh, computer-aided design tools. And I work with some grid software. 
So what that does is that enables you to have a room with hundreds or thousands of computers and have them all working together on the same programs or doing separate things all at once. But you could literally have thousands of these computers that are thousands of times more capable than whatever we had 30 years ago working all at once. So what enables a lot of this artificial intelligence and these things we do is just that the computer technology has gotten so much better, so much faster, and it's gotten cheaper that it enables us to write these computer programs that add, subtract, and compare very quickly and do a lot of it all at once, and the computer programming languages have gotten better. So the technology has enabled us to do these things. And, and we're pretty sure at some point this rate of advance is going to slow down, but it hasn't yet. The things keep getting faster and better. And so that's what enables us to talk about things like artificial intelligence and some of these other things. And of course, this, these kind of computers we have, that's also what enables the scientists that are searching for vaccine and treatments for coronavirus to do their work so much more quickly. I mean, without, without even getting into genetic engineering and all the things we have now that we didn't have 30 or 40 years ago, just the computing technology available to these people is amazing. And it's, and it's that growth in technology that allows many of these other things to happen. And that's something we have to I mean, think of the power you have in your phone. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just amazing. Uh, again, the, the, the famous comparison that you have more you have thousands of times more power in the smartphone in your hand than the astronauts had in the computer that landed them on the moon and brought them back. And I'm hoping if you think it's all a hoax, you aren't even listening to this. But um, so the, the growth in this technology is amazing. And that that enables all these other things to happen. Yeah, the hoax people. Listen, really, do you think Do you think if and the current president of the United States is Donald Trump, do you think if he found out the, uh, the moon landing was a hoax, he wouldn't tell you? Honestly? Sure. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can have a lot of different opinions about him, but boy, if he could distract you from the, uh, from the coronavirus mess by telling you, listen, I can tell you something's going to blow your mind. I mean, he would. He would. He would it would already be out there and somebody would have already written the book. And yeah, that that's that's always been my thing. Uh, well, about the uh, the computers, one, one thing. What'd you say? It would all be. <laughs> <laughs> it was my thing is how close to are we to true quantum computing? You know, I've been reading. That's, that's a really interesting question, and, and the answer to that is I don't know, because now they're, now they're arguing about whether we actually have a quantum computer yet or not. Uh, and so quantum computing, in, in a nutshell, is saying we actually have computers that work on the molecular level. And when we're able to have these computers that, 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 that are so powerful that, you know, now we're talking just orders of magnitude, more processing power and ability to process things in parallel – that enables us to solve all sorts of problems we can't solve right now. But so say you have a quantum computer that's on the molecular level, you also have to be able to program it. You're going to have to have some changes in the uh, lang programming languages and the ways we program computers, and that has to follow along with it. And there's people who know way more about that than I do. See, I, we could be really close. We could be a ways off. I, I'm actually not sure on that one. But it's, it's interesting watching people argue about it. Well, and, and to me, and again, because you're more versed in computers in general, wouldn't the basis of quantum mechanics, uh, quantum computing is you could have all possible answers at once? You know, provided you know how to get them. Yeah. And, and the power of a quantum computer, a true quantum computer would be the supercomputer that we have today, planet size. 
If you could have one yeah. planet size, now you're talking about the ability of doing quantum <clears throat> computing. <clears throat> and that... That's where things get really weird because that's when you can interface with computers, which is what Elon Musk wants to do, and have us all live in computer bodies. Yes. Elon says a lot of stuff. Uh, I was working uh, for a company that was doing encryption technology about 15 years ago now, and I was reading some books on, you know, data security and encryption, all this stuff we worry about when you hear data breaches and, you know, how when you order something over the Internet, does your does everybody not get your credit card number? And one of the things that was kept saying over and over, it says, okay, we have methods of encryption that are so good, they're effectively unbreakable until somebody invents quantum computing. And, and, and over and over, you t- they talk about 256 AES and these, these different types of encryption and said, of course, when quantum computing is available, then it can blow through all this and we'll need new ways to encrypt things. <laughs> so for now... Your credit card is safe. Whatever. <laughs> it's going to be It's going to be an interesting life that my children and hopefully my grandchildren lead. Uh, it's it's going to be, uh, well, it's just the same thing. My parents could not have envisioned, much less my grandparents, could not have envisioned that you and I would be doing this right now. That, that we'd be throwing a podcast out that people could listen to, that, that, we would, that we would live in the world we live in. My grandparents could not have envisioned my parents. Well, they could have. I, I, I have this theory that the last four or 500 years, it was a very recognizable life, right? You kind of knew what was going to happen with your kids and your kids and your kids. And in the last 70 years to 80 years, I think we've gotten to the stage where we can't comprehend the life our children will lead. I would agree with that, and, and, I, and I, I love talking about those things, about how rapidly things have changed. It's interesting when you talk about, well, now the last 120 years, and well, when, when did the most changes take place? And you're absolutely right when you're talking about all the things we have now, especially the last 20 or 30 years. But another thing to look at is, take the person who was born in 1900 and turned 50 years of age in 1950, the pace of change there, 1900. No computers, beginning of electrification, a few automobiles, not really. Nobody was flying through the air. Uh, No TV, no radio. None of those things existed in 1900. And by 1950, you had literally millions of airplanes, and you had the beginnings of computers. You had nuclear energy. You had radio. You had TV. And, and, and since then, we've, we've taken all those things and we've multiplied them and we've increased the technology and we've made them all better. But you look from 1900 to 1950, all these things didn't even exist in 1900 and they existed in some form in 1950. And, that, and that's another 50 year span where the, the growth in technology just made things unrecognizable. So to think what will happen in another 50 years, we can't even know. I still, I buy into the fact if they sit back and said, what is the most significant inventions for mankind in the last 100 to 150 years, I would still put refrigeration over computing. Refrigeration literally changed the death rate, the death toll, and how we live. Uh, And then after refrigeration, I would add communication. Uh, telephone, stuff like that. I would still put that over computers for now if you look at the big scope. But we don't see that. We only see what's in front of us. Uh, and, and we take the refrigeration for, for granted. But up until then, I mean, food was, food was not a storable thing. You just, it wasn't right. that. And and, it, and people died from food poisoning and salmonella and way more than we can even think about it. And it was going back to the acceptable risk. It was just part of day-to-day life. 
Right. When people talk about, without without going into politics of uh, what people want to tell us to eat and such, when people talk about the evils of, quote, processed food, well, well, it's refrigeration and, quote, processed food, good or bad, that enabled people to live in cities. We processed food so it would be, so it would be stable and so it could be transported and so it could be stored. And again, you, so you go back not that many hundred years and we couldn't do any of that. And you had to eat the food pretty much very close to where it came from. So everything and was made from it, scratch because they needed to use it that day. Absolutely. You, you know, processed flour, which we may not like for some nutritional reasons, you, you, can't, you can't move it long distances and store it if it's not processed. It'll decay. We live in a dream world compared to somebody from 1900. They would think we were living in Disney World. They, they you know, and, and not just the computer stuff. Hold it. You can, you can zap food and be able to eat it and it's good? You're kidding me, right? No. I, I mean, just the stuff that we take for granted day to day. It's like it's the stuff of fantasy. And honestly, without getting too political, it's the the way we live in the West is the stuff of fantasy with the majority of the world. Well, oh, yeah. And and, and this occurs to me all the time. There's there's not a week goes by where I don't think, wow, I'm living in a science fiction novel. So as you know, I'm, I'm insane and I like to backpack in the high mountains and risk altitude sickness and all sorts of stuff like that. But I'll, I'll be out backpacking in the Sierras with a, with a group of people. And I like to get away from the technology. So I don't, I don't carry my phone when I go backpacking with a group of people because odds are almost everybody else has their phone with them. Now you've got no reception in the mountains, but here you are reading your freeze dried food. You've got your ultralight stuff, which is all technology too. When you get to the top of a peak or a mountain pass, where all of a sudden you can see cell towers that might be 50 miles away. What happens now? Everybody who has a phone pulls it out. I borrow somebody's phone and I text Julia and I say, still alive, this is great. Maybe I even send a picture. I mean, think about that. You're 50 miles from the nearest parking lot or road. You're walking through the mountains. You pull this itsy, itsy bitsy little device out of your pack. And all of a sudden, you're literally in instant communication with the rest of the world. And, and I'm thinking, I mean, Think of how amazing all of this is and how we take it for granted. And by the way, even these Pacific Crest Trail through hikers, so most of them have their phones now. That's the ritual. You see, every, somebody gets to the top of a mountain pass, they pull out their phones and tell everybody else they're at the top of a pass. It's just amazing that people can do this. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, hell, people do that with their dinner. Why wouldn't you do it with a one what you got to the top of a mountain peak? That's... Well, I, said, I did it to my brother. The first time I ever did something like that was, I don't know, 15 years ago, my wife and I were going up a a fairly accessible peak in Yosemite that you can just walk up called Mount Hoffman, one of the one of the most underrated gems in the park. And it, it was August 28th. It was actually snowing that day, which was rare. But we'd walk to the top of this, and I realized it's my brother's birthday in Iowa, and he likes the mountains too. So I texted him from the top of Mount Hoffman, and I said, guess where I am on your birthday? So. I, I'm, I'm not celebrating you. Hey. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. His birthday. Uh, He's getting something from me. But he didn't have the view I had. Uh, I was looking down on him from five miles away. So this is my friend Chuck Fan, and, and Chuck, thank you for taking the time to uh, get up and, and talk to me and, and record this silly thing, and I appreciate it. Always, always fascinating, my friend. It's been great, Gary. Thank you very much. That this is what we know. Thanks for listening to Here's What We Know with Gary Scott Thomas, a Gather production, all rights reserved.